Ladies and gentlemen, and to everything in between and outside of that, I'm Layman Pascal on behalf of myself, Bruce Alderman, and all the supporters of the Integral Stage, uh, going liminally out front so you don't have to. Welcome to the first episode of what might be a whole series on dreams. We all dream, but we don't always recall our dreams, and we certainly don't always make the best or most versatile use of them. They seem to fulfill some evolutionary neurobiological purpose, but they also invite us to speculate and possibly experience what seems like a whole other world with different kinds of physics, different relationships, different moods, and a whole ancient and contemporary human wisdom about how to show up well in dreams and also how to be a good dreamer while you're awake. Joining me today is Daniel Delorier, co-author of a book on integral dreaming and a longtime dedicated and nuanced researcher into the multidimensional, transdisciplinary, and deeply fascinating world of the dream. Bonjour, Daniel. Bonjour. Hello, everyone. And since I'm in the highland of Hawaii, aloha. <laughs> aloha. <laughs> Daniel, what's the difference between you and a shaman? Oh. <laughs> well, um, I'm a dream worker. I'm a dreamer. Uh, I would think that uh, shamans are also dream workers and and um, and dreamers. A shaman will often will dream for other people, and and you know do the medicine, you know through their own consciousness. And what I teach is more like uh, is asking people to do that for themselves. Or the world, so um, so I don't I don't journey for other people. I, I invite. I'm more like a teacher. If if there is um, like different archetypes, I would think that the the shaman would be on, in the healer archetype, and I would be more in the teaching the teacher archetype. Yeah. Everybody's intrigued by their dreams to some extent. How old were you when you first started to take them really seriously, where you thought, this is something I should be putting some time into? I think I had my first big dream when I was about nine, but I, it was a future self dream. And it, the memory of it expanded as I age. So I had to kind of go to this a stage of uh, forgetting the dream and forgetting myself and forgetting the dreaming. And then I woke up to it again, uh, you know, around teenage, teenage years. But the future dream was fascinating because in the dream, I found myself like living in the United States. I'm from Montreal and I found myself, I didn't know about California, but that's probably where I was. And, uh, and I was doing things there as an adult. And, and I remember clearly what it meant to wake up. And then I, I told my dream self, told, say, okay, now you have to go back to your child consciousness and just wait until you grow up. And, and I have this, this sense of my sense of self like shrinking into my child self. And it was it, it was one of the largest dream, biggest dream that I had in my life. And then sure enough, I start recalling the dream in my 20s when I was uh, moving and orienting my life towards California. And I moved to California and that dream turned out to be true. So there was this interesting warp in time. You know, did I grow up to fulfill the dream? 
or did the dream really project myself in the future and told me told me that I would be okay to do this? We don't know. You know, time is is a, is a fascinating uh, a modality and and you know texture, and it's possible to have fold in time. And I think that that's what happened around that time. So, so this is a long answer, but yes, childhood, a teenage. But really, I fell into it when I started doing research and dream in graduate school. Yeah. Do you think it's important for people to, you know, you're like, what does it mean to have a dream that seems to be precognitive, right? And people can make different kinds of answers. Do you think it's important to come up with an answer or is it better to stay sort of loose and vague? Or is there, is there something about the shape of the ambiguity that's maybe more true than any of the answers we could have? I think that dreams have multiple horizon, horizons and that precognition is one of the horizons. So I, um, in, in looking at multiple horizons, I, yeah, I do hold it loose. You know, I, I think of, oh, what if this dream is telling me something about the future or something that I don't want the future to be. Like I had someone uh, who I worked with when I was uh, fairly young and uh, he kept dreaming that he was dying. And it, and so we worked on that, like, okay, like how can we make sure that you're not dying soon? So of course we all gonna die. So that's, you know, that's an, a certainty in life. But yet for him was to work around the anxiety that that was going to happen like really, really soon. And so we worked on that for not to happen. So it might be precognitive in a way that it tells you, oh, if I continue to do this, I will die soon. But if I change my life, it won't happen. So there's this really interesting uh, dynamic between dreams in our, in our future. So what, in approaching dreams, what would justify calling an approach interval? Hmm. I think of it uh, from the perspective of the complexity of, this, of systems and, and the complexity of the mind inside the complexity of the system. And so when, when we think of the the different dimension of ourself, like our physical self, our emotional self, our relational self, our ecological self, the dream can kind of touch upon any of those dimensions. And so for me, an integral approach will be an approach that is a large container approach that um, speaks to the multiple horizons of dreams, speaks to the multiple dimension of the self, and speaks to different ways of working with dreams that are not just like single-handedly doing one thing. And, uh, and it moves towards what I would call the, an horizon of creation, the creation of the self. Yeah. So the integral approach I drew from Wilbur, I drew for Aurobindo, I teach at CIIS at the California Institute, Institute of Integral Studies. So I drew from these different meaning of integral. Yeah. And in the book, Integral Dreaming, 
Um, I look at it as well from ways of knowing. So to understand dream from the science perspective, from the religious perspective, from the shamanic perspective, and you know, from maybe the, the perspective that you create on your own. So that's also an integral, an integral dimension. Yeah. The epistemological dimension. Yeah. Seems like there's uh maybe some different degrees of intensity in integrating approaches and dimensions of ourselves. Like one degree is to make sure we've brought them all together. Like we have all these different methodologies, all these aspects of ourselves lined up, but you can go a little bit beyond that and try to really allow them to grow into each other and create some new blending. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like that's an issue that you've been looking at. I don't really have a question there, but I'm curious how you feel about the, the difference between just including everything and really allowing all those included things to touch each other and integrate with each other. Uh-huh. Well, in the teaching, that's what we do. There's a sense with when you start engaging with dream of the openness and open-endedness of our being. Hey, we don't know what our tomorrow will be. But what are the antennas and where is our psychic uh, um, energy uh, tuning into, into the dream space? And then letting us know and giving us or sensitizing us that, oh, you're your um, relationship to growth now is into that direction. Like last night, I had a dream about retirement. My first retirement dream, I think, you know, and where I, and, and so, yeah, this is where I'm orienting myself right now. And then the dream is kind of telling me about my feeling about it. And, and it was a, a joyous dream, and it was a very paradoxical dream. So when I wake up, then I had to deal with that paradox. Like, what did that mean? Like, the paradox in the dream is that I had to sell something to buy something in order to create wealth. And I was like, it didn't make sense. So I'm working with that dream. That's just last night's dream. And, like, and I think it's pointing out to this various things that happen when you are going into retirement, when you are letting go of work or old habits, selling something, but you're buying into a new life. You know, now I'm working with the dream, like just with those words. So, so integrating, your question was about integration. So uh, in the dream, um, the integral dream book, I speak about dreaming as micro developmental events. You know, if you think of, oh, you have major developmental steps, but dreaming is this micro developmental events, a little bit like how you heal a wound, like one cell at a time. So it's like, how do you transform and integrate aspect of yourself and shifts? one one dream at the time so yeah so there was no question so i hope the, hopefully this that was a good rejoinder here <laughs> you've brought a lot of things a lot of different dimensions together in your work i wonder what you think you know if if a new you was starting right now what other things would he bring in what what would the future of integral dream studies include that isn't really included in it right now uh-huh. Well, 
I mean, the, the dream that I have that I'm working on philosophically right now is about the notion of reciprocal embeddedness. And that takes like systems theory and consciousness into sort of a, a new space of reciprocity and mutual embeddedness. We think like, like we are, we understand that we are inside the world now. Huh? And, but based and do, and, and as a matter of fact, because of our consciousness, the world is also inside of us. So we are both contained and we contain. And I think that I think I think that's the future of integrality for me is that to understand the implication of the reciprocal embeddedness, not just if the the the, the sense of of the complex system and their imbrication and, and the embeddedness that comes with it but the reciprocity that you come that you bring to it and that's a very large horizon so that's where i'm going that's where i that's that's my future yeah at least intellectually and where i'm going so i invite people to think about that you know what does it mean to uh, live a life that has reciprocal embeddedness at the center of it yeah it reminds me of a I think I heard Timothy Leary one time talking about the idea that uh, even though your brain is an object in your body, which is in the world, all your perception of the world is inside your brain, which is inside your body, which is <laughs> the kind of reciprocally nested structures that we inhabit. And we seem to inhabit those things, um, at least superficially, in these different domains, all right? This is a part of integral theory is this notion of states. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, maybe too casually sometimes, think about dreams as being access to a, a subtle state or a subtle realm of some kind with its own logic, its own creatures. How, how seriously do you take the idea that there's a dream world or a subtle realm of some kind? Is it mostly metaphorical or is it quite serious? Um, yes, there is a subtle realm. And it's the subtle realm that we create and that we enter into. So it might, it's not, it's subtle because of that. It's made of consciousness stuff. And, and when we wake up, the self that, the subtle self that was in the dream sort of dissolves. And, um, and then we recreate another subtle realm and another subtle experience, the next dream during the night or the, the next night over and so on and so forth. So it's quite, uh, that's how I relate to, to it. So it's not something where we go to, it's not the, sh I don't have the shamanic view that there's a world that exists like independently of us. And here, um, that's a, another notion that I'm working with. It's a notion of uh, trans-subjectivity. Um, here, uh, you know, we know about the subjectivity, my own, my own self, and my own experience. Intersubjectivity. We speak a lot about this in, um, um, you know, in the, the quadrant model, um, the we space, um, and what's in between you and I. But trans-subjectivity is that space between you and the subtle. So. It exists 
independently of you in the sense that you're not creating, but it takes you in order to, to perceive it. So I would think that that's, the dream is a, is a trans-subjective experience. Yeah. That's how I, 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 um, I understand it. Yeah. yeah, and we could tune in, you know, to each other and saying, oh, let's try to meet in the dream space. Or sometimes, you know, you're you're sleeping next to your partner and you have kind of shared a dream. Like the dream have similarities that are uncanny. And yet it's different than, oh, we are in the same cinema together, watching the same movie, tuned into the same frame at the same time. So so you know your 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 subtle realms are kind of dovetailing with one another and that's sweet to happen and and yet we're you know we're in the subtle realm together our subtle realm dovetail and yet i don't think we are in the same place if there's if we want to use the, the metaphor of place yeah yeah it seems to me that a lot of the intuitions we have about things from the gross realm or the waking world or whatever we want to call it don't quite apply to the content of dreams, right? Like, is there time and space and bodies in dreams? Sort of, it seems to be the answer. Like, maybe that's the wrong lens, the wrong expectation to bring to it. Do you, do you think of it as being a completely open zone where anything is possible? Or do you think there's a kind of physics, a kind of constraint, a kind of inherent nature to that domain that imposes its own limits, even if they're different and more fluid than the everyday limits? I think we bring our, our habits, you know, inside of our dreams. And even the habits of gravity, our, our experience of what it is to be a body, and, um, and even the the anxiety that we might feel when, when we are approaching some kind of harm, you know, think of it a dream where you're driving a car and you can't control the car anymore. <laughs> well, you know, this habit of driving a car is inside the dream, you know, even though it's a subtle car, you know, there you are, you, you are inside of the habit of you as a driver. And and then, yes, it's open-ended because right at that moment, it could be that you turn out to be lucid and you say, well, no, I'm flying a plane at this moment and it doesn't matter or else it doesn't matter if I crash because it's fine. I'm in a dream and I'm not afraid. And so the habit of fear can be changed or the habit of perception of what is it that I'm doing when I'm controlling an object. And so you can go either side in a in a lucid dreaming, okay? The the inner side or the outer side, you know, um, of of um, of experimenting with the imagery or the habits, the habits of perception. So so yeah, we do bring those, and then you know we expect that somehow gravity will work until it doesn't work until you decided that oh I want to fly now or you find yourself flying. And the reason it's so exhilarating because it's such a, it's such an experience to be outside of our habits, okay? I think that's that's why, you know, flying dreams, you know, especially 
if you're not afraid of falling, you know, it's so exhilarating. Yeah, it's a kind of a, a, a an embodied dimension that is is totally open-ended. Yeah. I was I was obsessed with flying dreams when I was a kid, uh-huh. and I would have this interesting thought, which was because sometimes things in a dream sort of signify things that are in the real world, like you're you hear a noise in your actual bedroom and it shows up as something in the dream. So there's a kind of passage sometimes between physical objects and dreams. And I would think about it going the other way. I would think, what is it I could do when I'm awake that would be the same as flying in my dream? How could Mm -hmm. I do that awake? (laughs) And then I ended up in my dreams paying very close attention to what seemed like the technical details of flying so I could try to uh, bring them back. (laughs) Yes, that's a beautiful... A dimension of the dream that it's sensitizing us in both, you know, the waking world to pay attention to something. And then when we start to do that, it impacts the dream again. Okay? Um, I, I know that as a dancer, I, I have a, a dance background and I keep learning new aspects about my body up to this day. And I know that when something opens up inside of my dance, the dream will pick up as well. So this thing about the perception of what am I doing when I'm flying, it's like a somatic sensitization dream. And the sports people use, use that, that capacity, you know, to, you know, to better themselves, this, this two-way street between the dreaming, the dreaming body, the subtle body, and then the, the you know, the, the gross body, the, our physical body, our waking body. Uh, and that's sweet, you know, to understand this kind of two-way, two-way street. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that experience. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun to talk about it. And uh, so I want to ask a question like what general, what general suggestions would you give a person about dreaming better? But it's almost like that question doesn't really make sense and would be extremely dependent on what people want to get out of their experience. Uh-huh. Um, I wonder if there are sort of some general suggestions that you do give to people about how they could have a more meaningful engagement with their dreams. Well, I tend to be, you know, um, a, a natural, naturalistic oriented here, meaning that there's so many different types of dreams that people can have and can cultivate. Or one of the, one of the um, cross-cultural practice with dream is dream incubation. So we know that, yeah, the Greek uh, had you know, particular temple, healing temples, where the dreaming was part of the, the healing ritual. And uh, or like going, that was the you know the first retreats in the I guess in the West or those that most well documented. But you know you go um, e- each place where I go when I travel, I look like where is the dreaming temple, and I find them everywhere. I found them in Taiwan when I was there. There was this particular um, uh, Buddhist temple, and people would uh, go there. At night, and it's it's often hush hush. It's secret, and you know, and uh, and ask for a special blessing, you know, in the dream. And so, if you press besides in Java, it's the same. In Mexico, in 
history uh, of, you know, the shamanic practices there. So dream incubation is one way where you don't have to go to a special place now. You make your bed the sanctuary of, of your, your dreaming space. And so the intention then becomes, you know, most, most important to enter the dream with a particular clear intention. And sometimes the intention is about relationships. Sometimes the, the intention is very um, mundane. Like I, I had an intent, I was buying um, or possibly buying a property and had to, you know, put this into my, oh, what will happen in my life if that if I'm buying this property and um, see what dreams comes. And I think a, there's someone who's writing a dissertation about you know this kind of questions that ask what people ask around around real estate. So it could be like really uh, straightforward questions or much more open-end question like uh, about being in relationship or wanting to, or creating the space inside of your life to invite others to join you in in relationship. Or it could be about work. No, like now the. I didn't do an incubation about my retirement, but definitely I know some people who, who have done so, you know. <clears throat> so when should I retire? What what will it look like? And so on. So asking questions before you dream, before you go to bed, is one way to engage. And then, you know, hold that lightly and do that over a few, few nights. Uh, one thing that I've noticed though is that sometimes when people are doing this because they're engaging with their dreams in a new way and then they're they're trying to catch something and the dream being what it is might disappear for a while oh i'm dreaming but as soon as i start to do the incubation i stop dreaming and that's fine you know just be relaxed and the dream will come back uh, are there physical things that help a good dream temple? Well, you know, there's there's so many things that are online right now when you look at how to set up um, <clears throat> your life in order to have a good night of sleep. So that's like the primary, um, a primary aspect. If you don't sleep well, you know, you're more you're less likely to to dream. Most of our dreams come at the end of the night when you get, uh, you know, your your deep sleep first, and as like the the mind and and the body is set up to say, oh, let's go to the deep sleep because that's where the the physical re regeneration takes place, and then the dreaming comes quote last in the, in the night. So a good night of sleep will ensure a good harvest of dreams. So whatever you do in order to prepare yourself for a good night of sleep is, will be very, very um, um, beneficent, you know, for, for dreaming. And, um, you know, there's a substance that people take, sometimes memory enhancer that are well known and, you know, you can find those and can trigger also kind of a form of lucidity uh, in, in the dream. So that's 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 an avenue, you know, to you know that some people take, and avoiding you know things that might stimulate you in a way that 
won't let you sleep like caffeine or or else alcohol that's a depress depressant you know when i was in the sleep lab there's a fellow who came and i could smell i asked them the participant not to not to drink before they come to the sleep lab the and he he had a couple of beer more than a couple of beer i could smell and uh, in his breath and even if i was waking him up during the night he wouldn't recall dream he was the only participant who didn't recall dream and i told him that in the, the next day and he says oh well uh you know it didn't matter but well i i saw how much the alcohol would depress the the dream um dream generation and that, i think that's what's happening when you stop alcohol there's like a really strong rebound that happens people will have nightmares and and so on so now psyche is a finely tuned you know machine if we want to use that word uh, <clears throat> What kind of data is recorded in the dream lab? Well, what you do in a dream lab is that you, you know, you you put electrodes on on the <clears throat> the skull so that uh, you can amplify the very subtle movement that can be picked up in different in in different places uh, on the skull, which corresponds to different places in the brain and and um, once amplified then you could see like different ways that the sound that the neurons are making together and so that in deep sleep the sound of the um, the neuron firing together is really slow at times it would be whoosh 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 almost like that sound and then you see it you see the uh, called so-called um uh, stage three and four very deep delta waves and high high um amplitude and low frequency but in dreaming it's like you can see the brain is super awake, sometimes even more so than at, during the day. So, whoa, now there's firework in the brain and, and all parts are kind of firing. And so this is REM. And, uh, and, and so you put also um, electrode next to the eyes and then you see, you pick up the eye movement. So, so that's how they say, oh, that's related to the eye movement right there. And then you have a, an electrode on the chin that is the last muscle that re relaxes in your body. It's very hard to relax your chin, but once your chin is relaxed, um, now you can see when you enter the state of atonia in the sleep lab, when you go into this form of self-induced paralysis. So your body is offline so that you don't act out your dream. I mean, th this is... Just imagine that this that this atonia would not happen. You would be moving and wanting to do things that your brain is doing in the dream. And sometimes it happens. I mean, some people have um, uh, REM, REM behavior disorders that this atonia is you know not online, and then suddenly they start acting out in the dream, and it's 
usually it's not dangerous for themselves. It's more mainly the partner next to them that say, hey, you know, I, I want to sleep. So that's what we record, the eyes, the, the muscle tone, and then, you know, the brain. And, and when you see an alignment of those three with atonia, REM, and then the, the sound of the, the brain waves, uh, very active, then you know you're dreaming. That uh, atonia, sometimes people wake up in that condition. It happened to me one time. Uh, and uh, what's the, you know, how frequent is that? And what, what is a good piece of advice for someone who comes out of a dream and finds their bodies still paralyzed for a while? Yeah, I mean, that's a way of explaining sleep paralysis and those dreams in which we are paralyzed in the dream as you're like just about to wake up. And suddenly you find yourself into this paralysis state that you can't move and you can't run. And, you know, and if it becomes scary, it can turn into a nightmare. Um, it's not so frequent. We're quite well-tuned, but it's frequent enough that most of us have had an experience like that in our life or maybe have one or two, you know, per year or something like that. So... Ryan Hurd uh, has done research on sleep paralysis and connecting with the lucid dream state because most of the time the sleep paralysis is somewhat fear-inducing that you can teach yourself to have the sleep paralysis as a trigger to lucidity. And, and I think he does wonderful work with that. Uh, but it's not frequent, and uh, but when it when it happens, there it is. It's your chance, you know, to become lucid. Yeah, because when when are you paralyzed in your life? None. So if you can just like go into this metacognitive space right at that moment, yeah, you open yourself to lucidity. Yeah. When you become uh, lucid in a dream, whether spontaneously or by practice. You know, other than other than having sex or flying, what's a really useful thing for a person to do when they awake within the dream? Uh huh. Wow. You can ask the big questions. Fariba <laughs> um, Bogzaran, you know, did a dissertation about you know connecting with God in that state. I hope you get to interview her, you know, for this and ask her about, about her research. So you could go as far as you wish in terms of the question you, you, know, you wanna ask for yourself. Once I, you know, I was inside of a, a sweat lodge ceremony and I, I um, uh, took my clothes off in order to go inside the sweat lodge. And then I did it again. And then I thought, hey, I just took my clothes off. And I, then that was the trigger. I was in a dream. And just like you, I said, oh, what should I do now? And I thought, let's fly because I like that. And right away in the dream, the window uh, grew bigger and I was able to fly through the window. And But unfortunately, the dream ended right there. I thought I flew and that was it. So it was like, oh, so that was a teaching in my in my uh, in my life that at that moment the really the things to do is like I was going through a ceremony I was in a in a very amazing dream to begin with and I became lucid why did I leave the ceremony because I wanted to fly I should have stayed there I should have stayed in the ceremony and just be with 
what the dream was presenting. And uh, so that became a deep teaching. I was, I had that experience in my, in my 30s, early 30s, where, okay, oh yeah, I can fly now. And then realized I was a missed opportunity of a, a learning opportunity. And so funny that the dream kind of like, kind of went nowhere after that, because I think that the psychic energy was, hey, inside of this ceremonial space, and I left. So I would say, yeah, tune in to where you are and see what part of the uh, the dream you, you'd like to explore. And if it's within, well, yeah, go go within. But if it's outside, if you're in a particular space, yeah, do, do engage. There's so many things you can do there, yeah. I like that, the idea of using that opportunity to participate more in the dream that is happening. Mm-hmm. I definitely, the first time I ever remember waking up in a dream, I immediately started to fly and it was like the myth of Icarus. I flew, I flew too high and then I was awake in my bed and I was like, go back down, go back down. But it was too late. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Balance just right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like there's this kind of energetic balance with, with lucidity and a little too much excitement. And then you wake up. And then a little less, then you go back to the natural dream or, you know, the, the non-lucid dream. So it's just like meditation is like a sweet spot. And, and you feel energetically as well. You know, you might have the, the first rush and then you can just like write it. Oh, this is fun to be inside the dream. Uh, Do you encourage people to write their dreams down? If, it, if it's a big dream, yes, that's what I do. I don't write all my dreams. Uh, but usually when it's a big dream, uh, I will write it down and come back to it. Yeah. So I have a, and for me, I write it online. I don't have a separate dream journal. Just so they're, they're there so that I can research them and, and tune into them. You know, they're searchable basically because now they're, like in my computer. So do what works for you. Yeah. And most of my other dreams, I I will share with someone. And, and it's in the sharing now that the recording or the work is being done. I'm, I'm curious what the difference is, like, what difference it makes to oneself to speak the dream to someone versus writing it down, because uh, my experience of writing it down, it sort of makes me more tuned into dreams and then my dreams start to stand out to me more. Uh, and mm-hmm. when I tell people my dreams, that doesn't necessarily happen. It's true. It's true. And so this is the natural place inside of me that say, yeah, do what works for you. Yeah. Yeah. And often with this telling of a dream would be, might be, with a particular, your dream buddy, or, or I mean, take, think of it as your, your therapist. You know, a lot of people bring their dream body is their therapist because they that's who they confide the dream with. So they do it there. And sometimes it's, you know, your partner, your, um, your lover, um, your life partner. So, and, and, and when it's ongoing with someone like that, you get you get to know their patterns and you get to know your patterns in sharing as well. 
and you not only are you sharing the waking life but you're also sharing you know your subtle life and um yeah it takes it it takes you to a next level i think in terms of intimacy as well because sometimes you know there are dreams that you don't necessarily want to share with your partner <laughs> let's say that you dream that you're with somebody else um i mean okay well what does that mean you know will i share that dream with the partner or not and you know what what conversation will open up if you do yeah. or dream about gender fluidity and a partner might be um how do you say um well um triggered by such dreams and so you you withdraw from from sharing that dream and then maybe that's the reason why some people only confide those kind of dreams you know to their therapist yeah so they feel like a, a safe container and it doesn't rock any relationship other than you know the one with the therapist uh, there's a is sometimes a dream is um very fluid like you might think to yourself, oh, I saw my father in my dream. But then if you very carefully try to remember what you saw, it might, it, maybe you could have called it several different things. And now you're calling it your father, right? So you have some mm. options of creativity, even in the moment of interpreting and explaining the dream. That's, I don't know how, I'm curious how you think about, you know, the creativity of the dream and the additional creativity of deciding what the dream was. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if this speaks to, you know, the notion of so-called perception. Because even in the waking, there is more to the brain towards the object of perception that uh, is more neuron and more activities going that way than the activity going inside. So I, I think it's let's say 60-40, that you think, oh, I'm only receiving something. No, I'm actually creating what I'm, as I am perceiving. And, and, and with all the emotional baggage or whatever, that sometimes people will create and not, not see the reality as, as it is, because now it's overlaid, you know, with, um, with something else, you know, inside of the, the perception and so just imagine how now they're in the 60 40 inside of the dream i don't know what the ratio would be hey is it like 90 10 <laughs> there's there's a something there but really what i see is what i what i create um so, so that's a fascinating question. I would love, I, you know, this could lead to really interesting research. Yeah, I love that question. So I, yeah, I, I would love to just uh, <laughs> riff with you with this, maybe in a, in a different conversation where, yeah, we'll, you know, we we'll can keep it at talk about it for now. You know, in your approach, it's very inclusive. It brings together a lot of different ways of approaching dreams. 
I'm curious if there are approaches you would not include. Hey, have you ever heard somebody with an with an attitude or a philosophy or an approach to dreams, and you thought, "No, that <laughs> that one's no good." <laughs> hmm. I remember at a time when I was judgmental of the psychosexual reductionism and Freudian approaches, and because it could be, re, you know, reductive as if all of our dreams are now being seen through the prism of, you know, the psychosexual phases. Uh, and, and then I went to a conference uh, where there was a, a psychotherapist, uh, a psychoanalyst there, and it reconciled me with, with that approach. And it was fascinating because it, it was a dream where um, it was one of my dream. And the dream was, I, uh, I, I don't know, I think it's in the integral dreaming book. I called it virgin anger, virgin anger. That it was an intersubjective dream where in the dream, I could see that someone was withholding their anger the way that you withhold sexuality when you want to keep your virginity. And in the dream, suddenly it the anger broke out. Oh, not in the um and um and then this this notion of a of virginity around around expressing your anger the same way that you would do with sexuality. So that's kind of like a, a fairly interesting dream um connection there. And this psychoanalysis. Uh, start to talk about the process of invagination. So I never heard of that. Like I heard of castration, I've heard of all the, but I'd never heard of invagination. And for for him, it was uh, it was a man. This dream was kind of sexualizing in a feminine way the world around virginity. Although, you know, there could be male virgin or a female virgin. And then it got me to think, okay, what is this thing about invagination and the way that we sexualize reality in one way or another? And then it kind of reconciled to me to a certain degree uh, the idea that, oh, there's this constant dimensionality of, of um uh, gender and gender expression. And now we see it in the world around gender fluidity and people don't know really where to situate themselves in all of this discourse now. You know, you have the progressive discourse, you have the, the, the counter uh, the counter narrative. And then there's a lot of people who are kind of like, what do I, they're like, don't know what. So this dream kind of brings you to that that idea that, oh yeah, it's pervasive and uh, it could be a pervasive dimension of the dream as well, if you start unfolding in that way. Um, and then the other part was uh, around the Freudian approach is the idea that, you know, the dreams are only a defensive mechanism and therefore the psyche is protecting you of seeing the reality. So I didn't like that approach to, to dream. I thought always that 
the dream will want to show you something that you're ready to see. And this person, again, was kind of pushing me and said, well, how do you know that you're inside of your projection of what you think you're seeing, you're not deluding yourself? So he asked me kind of a deep question that kind of like gnawed at the root of um, my certainty. And, um, and it, was, it was a good moment. So since then, I kind of made peace with the idea that, okay, you might be projecting something into the world that you need to look at. And inside of the working with the dream, thinking of what is not said and what can be found in the, in the non-said. So it doesn't portray the, the fullness of, 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 of my, my transformation around that, but, but that's the, that's the <clears throat> I, found, I found a place of truth for Freud inside of the world along those two, those two dimensions. Uh, you know the the pervasiveness of 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 this sexual and gender dimension inside of the world, and the idea that you know we never know if we don't we're not deluding ourselves. So we always have to keep that question behind everything we do. Yeah, yeah. it's a form of lucidity, but in a, uh, in in an indirect way. You know, like the devil's advocate towards our certainty. Uh, what about, uh, how do you feel about sort of popular dream guides? You know, a person buys a book and it has a thousand things you could see in a dream. And here's what it means if you see this in a dream. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, if it gives you ideas, you know, and if it's helpful for you at that moment, and if that's your first step towards engaging with the dream, that's fine. I'm actually I have no judgment, and uh, and these exist like, and uh, almost like you, you, when you learn to swim, you 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 have a, your level one, and then you you go to whatever it was juvenile when I was young, and then junior, and then senior, and then lifeguard, and whatever. So, I mean, juvenile is you know the first step, and you do it. It's not like if you're ready for more, then you go for more. And then you realize, oh, I think um, I think I want to do something else. I'm ready for uh, and then you'll see that you you'll get a, you'll get another book um, and then expand your horizon. But to begin with that, sure, then it's, it's it's great, you know. When it's you a shortcut. I would think it's a shortcut. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> when you were talking about uh, opening up to the idea of of perceptions having sort of sexualized content. I thought of this difference between, say, French and English, where in French, objects do have genders. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, to what degree are dreams universal and to what degree are they colored by the particular language that we grow up using? Yeah. How do we, how do we find that out? Eh? Because yeah. we are who we are and and we we express our sense of self from within the matrix, our cultural matrix. So 
I only I can only know my Frenchness when I butt against a different culture. Eh? There's so many things that are invisible to me. And then you go travel and then, oh, my God, that's how we do it at home. <laughs> you know, you have a culture shock there and then you learn new ways and you come back and then you have the reverse culture shock. So I think our dreams is like traveling in that way, you know, that like they show us different perception of ourselves. But how this, how is this perception already kind of uh, cloated into an, a, a perceptual habit inside of the language that we have? Like, how do we go out of that? I, possibly, possibly, hmm. Like I, I had a dream about the Uroboros of the so-called the snake biting his own tail. And that's the image. You see it when you read the Jung. I think he, you know, there's one of one of the um archetypal image that, that he discusses. And in the dream, it came with with language. Mm. So the dream says the tail is the tail. The tail T-A-I-L is the tail T-A-L-E. And that dream is in the integral dreaming book. And then suddenly I understood this image that it's not like a snake biting its tail. It's a snake regurgitating its tail, its body. So that the tail is the tail. So the tail that is my mouth, which is myself, is the tale that I tell the people in the world. And so there's a language dream right there. But it's, look, I'm, I'm French, but this is an English dream. It wouldn't work in, in French. The outlet, this, this, um, uh, this dream, it only works in English. Okay? So there's something beautiful about, about language and dreams. And maybe being bilingual, I have kind of can operate with dual systems, you know, that I have. You French had dreams. dreams in French? Yeah. When I go back to Quebec, I, I, I start to dream in French. But other, other, other than that, you know, I'm fluently living in English. So most of my dreams are in English. So last night was about buying and selling, not uh, acheter, vendre. You know, those were the words that. I had in my mind, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I'm curious about how closely the experience of dreams is tied to these external symbols. Like when we look at a brainwave frequency or we look at rapid eye movement, right? Are these the only times we're dreaming or are we dreaming sometimes without those external indicators? Mm-hmm. Well, that's... That is that has been a question that's debated or research, you know, quite um, quite a lot. Um, that's in, in science, you know, you always go with definitions, and the definition might be any kind of mentation that you have while you're sleeping is called a dream. So you have REM dreams, and then non-REM dreams, which mean mentation processes that you have that might be more like memory, like memory about yesterdays and, and so on. And some people will count that 
as dreams. So depending on what you call a dream, if you make have a big category of mentation while sleeping, then anything that you recall while you were sleeping then is understood as a dream. But if you think of it as this kind of storied, hallucinatory uh, virtual reality that you kind of engage into, and that's the dream because that's kind of particular quality to it, those are more likely to be found in RAM. So outside of RAM or more likely to be like the way that you have like daydream or that you have a memory of your partner or your life uh, yesterday or or vision of the future. So more like that. And um, but there you go. And then you have the hypnagogic, the you know, the images that you see when your mind is sort of going offline, and then you start to have images or a story. I call that the sweet spots, really, really sweet. And especially if you have uh, insomnia to to go back into this space where you're racing thoughts or letting go and then suddenly it starts to become a little bit more looser and 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 storied kind of thoughts so those can be seen as dreams and of course in the morning when you wake up <laughs> yeah if you uh wake up from a dream, you know, there you you have it, like right there and then. Uh, How and this kind of a go go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go. This leads me to want to know how far down the, you know, evolutionary stack we think this phenomenon goes. If we take the sort of hypnagogic and the hallucinatory narrative kind of notion of a dream, how much do we have to have? How much does an organism have to have in its system to be capable of that? Right? Are mm-hmm. only the higher animals dreaming? Are all the animals dreaming? Are the plants dreaming? How far down does it go? Mm-hmm. Well, you look at who sleeps, you know, who has a diurnal uh, rhythm, and definitely, you know, some of the major um, research around sleep is done even on fruit flies. So there you go, quite <laughs> quite far away, you know, to look at uh, night behaviors of, uh, you know, living animals. So, and of course, I'm sure plants kind of go into this mode, day mode and, and night modes as well. I mean, definitely plants, some of them like close at night or, or express, um, scent you know only at night or something like that so there's things that are happening around diurnal you know with plants that's for sure for us i think in terms of evolution i think human dreams are are human dreams i mean they're probably the most complex dreams that uh, a brain can create that's my my belief dolphin dreams will be complex too. They have complex, you know, social life, but it might not be as complex as ours because their life are not as complex as human life, you know, and whatever they have to figure out in their dreaming, their learning, their social behavior uh, will be what, what the dolphin dream is. We might never know, you know, what a dolphin consciousness is or a dolphin dream is, but, you know, we do, we do know that they 
uh, have a, a, a beautiful adaptation of even their sleep patterns, you know, because they dream and they sleep just one hemisphere at a time because they have to keep circling up and they have to work. So one of one hemisphere is kind of doing the swimming and doing all of that and tuning into the other partner. And one hemisphere is, is sleeping. So are the dolphins the master lucid dreamers of this world? Maybe they have lucid dream to the max, the, the because they're awake and asleep at the same time. So I, we don't know what it is to be a dolphin, you know, I'm sure, but that whatever they do is that that's at the pinnacle of evolution for them. And so we are not there. We have our own path. I think dreaming is at the pinnacle of our evolution. Our dreaming is probably the most complex one in the world. Yeah. That's a fascinating image of dolphins. I, I've heard this thing about their brain, but it never occurred to me to extrapolate to the possibility they might be lucid dreaming all the time, half asleep and half awake. <laughs> and then what does the ocean look like through that lens? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I live in Hawaii, the spinner dolphins come and come and visit and, and there are signs where we have to be really respectful of them because people would go and they feel, oh, I want to sleep with the dolphin. And I tell them, tell people like, how would it feel like if you had a bunch of people who come in your bed at night? Oh, look, this human is there and it's doing nothing. And let's, let's do something. So, yeah, if you go swim with the dolphins, be very, very mindful. Just be inside of that really calm space, not to wake them up <laughs> more than they need to be, you know. Um, and um, they're, you know, beautiful creature to be around, that's for sure. Yeah. What's the most exciting or surprising thing you've encountered in recent dream research? Hmm. I'm working on the notion that dreams may bring philosophical insight all the time if we push the question in that direction. So that we've that maybe the source of philosophy and even the source of philosophizing is the dream, the dream space. And so that when working with dreams, there's like the self-inquiry dimension, like, okay, what am I learning about myself? And then you could stop there, or what is it informing about our relationship? But then if you push the transubjective domain to, well, what is this that I'm learning about, about? So let's say that I'm learning about, let like retirement, then I can ask, well, is there a philosophy around retirement? What is the philosophical question that underpins what retirement means? Not just what it means to me, my retirement and all that, but just the nature of retirement per se. So I think the dream is kind of constantly telling us. It's like the philosopher in the house about the nature of the like when I was writing the book, like the tale is the tale. I had that book while I was writing about complex system. And they often were 
speaking of the Ouroboros as the complex system. And to me, then suddenly I recognized that, oh, this is about self-creation. And, but the ingurgitating aspect, you know, the oral aspect of the image of the Ouroboros was not in the right direction. It was the regurgitation uh, uh, direction. And then I understood the image. So it was like a fascinating moment in understanding complex systems. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a lot of our, yeah. a lot of the conscious skill that we might call being a philosopher uh, could be evolved as an extension of wondering what meanings are implicit in our dreams. Yeah. And to push that. And so any dream then can be pushed, pushed or in, 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 um, inquire into not only about myself, about we, but about it, about the that of the dream. Yeah. I'm just publishing something now on, on heart knowing, because that was where the dream um, brought me. And it was very, very simple dream about me giving a hug to a good friend here in Hawaii and waking up with this energetic quasi-electric feeling in my body from that hug and um, like right around the heart. And then I start to inquire about the nature of the heart and what does it mean to know from the heart? So the dream was the, the beginning of the question of this philosophical inquiry about heart knowing. Yeah. So maybe that's what it is to go to, to be growing older where you, you, you peel the layer until the layer is not even about the self. The layer, the layer is about what the nature of that is, whatever it is that the dream is about. Yeah, the philosophical uh, dimension of the dream yeah it does seem like dreams are at least for the right person <laughs> dreams are an invitation to depth and a a really personal way of exploring complex patterns patterns that aren't so straightforward to us reminds me of well psychedelics are a bit like that but being immersed in nature is a bit like that as well mm -hmm. yeah totally you know in the psychedelic inside of the etymology of the word, this kind of self-creating aspect. And nature, when you engage nature from the place of, of reciprocal embeddedness, someone was telling me, hey, nature becomes psychedelic at that moment. I said, yes, it is, exactly. You know, there's a self-revealing dimension that takes place in, inside of that deeper um, connection with with reciprocity. Every breath is changing me and every breath I'm changing the world. I'm being fed by what the tree gives me, the oxygen, and I'm feeding the tree with my CO2, my, um, my out breath. So there's this constant dynamic of exchanging. I and mean, there it is very very simple around the breathing you know even the uh, you know the chemistry of breathing and why it's you know it's so good when we walk in the forest and we are in nature 
because suddenly these uh, these relationality are becoming more and more clear to our mind and to ourself, and it changes our perception of the self. You know, in in the, in the book Integral Dreaming, there's a chapter where I say, "Where is the dreaming? You know, is the dreaming in my brain?" Of course it is, you know, that the dreaming takes place. But now if we think like I'm dreaming about our relationship, now really what's dreaming? Is it the we, the intersubjective space that wants to become whatever it wants to be through me? But it's, it's sort of like the dream is in between you and I. But then if we extrapolate that to nature, what if I have a dream of saving the whales? Is it the whales that are connecting through me, through the systems, the larger systems, that there needs to be something done about, you know, their extension or their possible extension? Or, you know, do they synthesizing? Is the dream kind of a, so is the dream coming from the, the field? You know? And so the dream, the brain being somewhat the, this uh, tuning mechanism of these patterns are, again, totally reciprocally embedded. And so that the dreaming exists in different locus of transsubjectivity. So the locus may, may come through me, but it's not always about me. There's a novel a few years ago called The Overstory. And one of the things that happened in it was the some of the oldest trees were sort of um, inserting themselves into people's dreams and trying to get people to be concerned about the plight of these thousand-year-old organisms. <laughs> it's a very beautiful idea, especially if we think of the actual chemical pheromones and things coming into our brains through the air. Mm -hmm. Chemistry yeah. is really intriguing to me. Uh, we mentioned psychedelics a minute ago, and I... I've several times had a dream where I always had the same flavor. Right? It was always sort of absurdist and apocalyptic and profound. And there were elves and the colors seemed more vivid than my normal dreams and seemed super convergent. And when I learned that our brain produces the chemical DMT, and sometimes it spikes in your brain as part of your circadian rhythm, I would wonder if I was dreaming and a, a DMT spike occurred in my brain and it has this flavor. So I'm very curious about the, you know, the way the chemicals interact and, and what we mm -hmm. experience while those interactions are occurring. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, tuning it down to now is the dream at the chemical level at the, you know, this, this, this molecular dimension. And then why would those molecule will have that particular effect as opposed to any other effect? So where's the locus of the dream then again? So you can start very, very small and go very, very big. And I think an integral approach is saying that the locus of the dream is at all of these levels and not just focus on one because oh yeah we find out that you know dmt and the dream or whatever other neurochemicals that we produce during dreaming then we think oh this is the dream yes that's the dream and so is the entire earth dreaming with us you know so it's it's 
it's all the way up and it's all the way down. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to locate, you know, like you look at this like, oh, yeah, there's a spike there. So there's a dreaming active right around this, this molecular event. That's wonderful. And yet, what is the dream about? And then you, it's a relational event. And that's pulsate too. And um, of course, we can ask you about helps in your life and, you know, what they do and who, who they are for you and, and so on. And uh, what you're around. We, we, we entered my world about the imaginal. You have your perception of what, you know, the participatory world is, you know, with the elves. So I, I would love to ask you a question about that. We can reverse the, <laughs> the roles here. But that's what I do when I work with dreams, yeah, with people. Yeah. So tell me about your world and, and in your, inside of your dreams. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that would be a fun conversation, but I'm I'm afraid to start that conversation because we're probably yeah. at a place to end this discussion at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any 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 other thing you want to share that's coming to mind, or do you feel like how do you feel? You feel like we're mostly wrapped up, or anything else? Yeah, that was a great interview. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, yeah, I love. I love our interactions. I love the questions, and and our you know our connection there. So hopefully something good will come out of it. Yeah, in the editing process. Speak again. This was very um, very sweet and wide ranging and intelligent. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Same wise, you know. I uh, uh, you're you're a good interviewer. You're very. Uh, very embodied and you come you know from a place of uh genuine you know curiosity and i it was easy to to follow your your thread and uh, uh appreciate you yeah, yeah and uh, i guess because you're in hawaii we can end the same way we began with an aloha <laughs> aloha to you aloha <laughs> to you layman pascal <laughs> be right. well yeah. <laughs>